Barbara, thank you for joining us again to update the status of things in New York City. How's the last week been? So over the last week, or certainly over the last few days, we seem to have reached a steady state. We're hoping that this is the peak. We don't know if the peak is a peak or a plateau, but certainly from the perspective of providing care and be able, being able to staff all of our hospitals, it's very reassuring when we demand for our needs that everybody is saying they're fine. So from that perspective, it's status quo, but it continues to be an incredible burden on the staff, the faculty, the house staff, the nursing staff and all involved, housekeeping, everybody. It's still maintaining full throttle forward to cope with this incredible surge. And obviously that it comes with a tremendous psychological burden because the number of deaths really are horrifying and startling. Um, and it's having a toll on everybody involved. So given how much we don't know, what do you see as the sort of research agenda around COVID-19? So I think obviously the major focus is on therapeutics. This is a devastating disease uh, that with, as I mentioned, a very high mortality rate uh, and that we currently have no identified um, therapy. So one of the major focuses at the moment is to, to, to identify something that can at least decrease the severity of the disease, uh, decrease mortality, um, or intervene earlier to prevent that rapid decline. So there are multiple trials underway for treating COVID. There's also some prophylactic uh, studies underway to try and prevent development of COVID in healthcare workers. So another major focus is convalescent serum as a therapy, identifying individuals that have had COVID that have developed high levels of antibodies and then doing freezes to get antibodies to those individuals to develop convalescent serum. And we have, are part of a, a group that are doing that nationally. Um, we have to date managed to treat 36 patients um, that are severely ill on our inpatient service and have lined up another 40 patients to be treated. So therapeutic, multiple therapies, target, targeting um, anti-IL-6, antivirals, uh, we're looking at complement inhibitors, we're looking at hydroxychloroquine and convalescent serums. So beyond therapeutic, there's a focus on developing vaccine development, but that's, it's, it's, which is going to be vital, um, but it's going to be more of a, a, a longer term view of things. Part of what we are also focusing on is uh, getting a better understanding of the disease, trying to identify those that are more likely to decompensate and need ICU. Um, at Sinai, our big data group as part of genetic and genomic sciences, along with the Hassel Plattner Institute and Sinai, are developing an algorithm to risk stratify individuals um, that should be targeted because this has been a, a major issue. You know, we give these criteria that identify individuals as being high risk, you know, older patients, diabetic patients with hypertension, renal disease, diabetes, yet there are individuals that decompensate rapidly that we would not have expected. So, and even within the high risk population, there are patients that do fine and others that do very badly. So being able to target therapies earlier to individuals at higher risk 
is a major focus at the moment. And um, so the, the research initi initiatives are multifaceted, aimed at diagnostics, therapeutics, and long-term development of vaccines. There's also some interesting work being done at Mount Sinai with, uh, again, the data group headed up by um, Alex Charney and others from Genetics and Genomic Sciences. And they've launched an app to uh, have people self-report symptoms or lack thereof so that you can track hotspots within the community. And today, just over 26,000 patients have signed on to that app on reporting daily symptoms. And something like that is going to be incredibly important as we try to reemerge from this into society to be able to track uh, reemergence of the disease and localize it and then rapidly test individuals in that community um, to try and contain and control the disease. So the, the innovation and um, research that is going on is really quite broad. It's amazing how rapidly it has been developed, and it's amazing the enthusiasm and the focus of the research community on this issue at present. I'm also struck by how multidisciplinary it must be. Yeah, no, it's literally, it's, it's, it's everyone. It's, it's um, immunology. It, it really is extremely important. The clinical trials really are being headed up by infectious disease and pulmonary for the most part. Uh, but then the basic sciences are very broad, microbiology, genetics and genomics, looking at underlying genetic susceptibilities, big data, immunology has developed a uh, Luminex assay for multiple cytokines so that patient, patients can be tracked. There's research in the area of pathology. It's really extremely broad reaching. And, and, and what's very, very nice is certainly in our institution and I'm sure in others, the uh, groups have come together to streamline the process uh, so that people aren't competing with each other. Uh, the acquisition of precious samples from individuals are uh, done as one process, and, uh, which then is accessed by multiple people. There is a review structure put in place and an oversight committee to determine what studies are onboarded, which studies are prioritized, and all of this has come together within weeks. So um, there's a common focus, common purpose, and an understanding that the need is great and needs to be answered rapidly. I'm curious as to how the Institutional Review Board process works in a situation like this. There has been a, a, a tremendous response by the IRB and the oversight of the IRB by Glenn Martin here at Mount Sinai so that any protocol related to COVID uh, goes through rapid review. So that's enabled us to uh, rapidly onboard studies and get um, have our patients have access to those experimental therapeutics very rapidly. The other thing is how we've been able to scale that across um, our different hospitals. It's clearly been easier to do that at the main campus on the Upper East Side uh, but we have pushed out uh, some and hopefully all of those to uh, other campuses across uh, our health system and campuses that were not normally very involved in clinical trials. But the aim is to make sure that all patients within our system have access to these experimental therapeutics. 
so I'm curious, you mentioned that you were able to scale up research really quickly. How, how were you able to do that? Where did the funding come from? Some of it is um, enabled by the infrastructure at the institution, um, but a huge part of this has been due to an outpouring of members of our board, members of the community uh, donating to research in our institution. And the dean has then deployed that to high priority areas specifically development of the antibody targeting COVID so that we can identify immune individuals, the development of the Luminex assay, the supports for the clinical trials across the institution uh, and, and other, other initiatives. So that really has allowed us to be very nimble um, and has meant that we haven't had to wait for NIH funding. The hope is that we will get NIH funding obviously to support these initiatives and that they will obviously warrant it, which I think and believe they do. But the donations and support from the community within New York has, have been tremendous and have really helped spur the innovation. So I'm just curious, I mean, clearly a lot of what's happening is, is leadership, that there's, there's individuals at your institution, including yourself, that, that see the importance of thinking about this situation beyond the current crisis and helping to prepare us for the future. But how, how does that conversation take place sort of across the institution? So there's multiple forums for that. I mean, there's the individual forums in, in, in uh, individual institutes, research institutes and departments. But really what's been interesting in seeing the um, cross dialogue between those departments and institutes and really led by our dean who has made it very clear that as we are focusing on this from the clinical and operational perspective the research has to be at the forefront as well because the only way out of this is to develop a therapeutic or a vaccine um, so that there, this is not a perpetual problem so he has been very uh, instrumental in in driving that initiative and and you know maintaining uh, the focus of the institution on research as an equal priority. So as I'm just thinking about the future, and it may be too soon to kind of have this conversation, but I'm curious as to your reaction to this. It seems like over the next, say, six months, different parts of the world and different parts of the United States will be experiencing various degrees of, of um, the virus and, and their responses they'll start to emerge more, certainly testing capabilities and more sort of rapid testing. There'll be emerging science around individuals and in, in who's more or less susceptible both to COVID-19, but also to experiencing you know, really dramatically bad outcomes. And then as we think about gatherings, um, there'll be more people wearing masks in public, more people following Dr. Fauci's advice and, and never shaking hands again and big, large activities like concerts or sporting events, you'll see you know, testing to get in, not unlike security you know, after 9-11. And then at some point, maybe a year from now, there'll be a vaccine or, or um, you know, ways to, to sort of prepare us for the future. Is that a reasonable sort of outline, both of the timeline, but also kind of the next steps? So I think that's a big question and it's a, a, a major source of conversation, certainly. If you look towards people like Zeke Emanuel and Tony Fauci, um, the scenario and when they're, what they've been discussing in public and about a plan for re-emerging, that certainly seems to be 
a reasonable anticipation of, of what will will be lying ahead what lies ahead of us so you know some of some of the other things to be considered are about uh, you know it coming back in the in the fall a lot of people have talked about the influence of 1918 which uh, occurred in the spring quiesced during the summer and came back with a vengeance in the fall and uh, what I've been trying to discuss with people in work to try and allay their fears to some extent is that it's a very different situation now to then and what's going to modify things in the fall as compared to previous what's going to modify things in the fall is science science is going to change the course of things and we can't keep on responding like this we can't keep seeing this number of deaths and people being ill um, so science is what's going to change the course and not make this the influenza of 1918. The the other aspect of this, um, and it's something we've been considering and looking to, to build a registry to comprehensively follow patients affected by COVID, and that is you know, the likelihood or the possibility that individuals that have had severe disease or even moderate disease may have long-term impacts with regards to pulmonary, renal, cardiac, uh, neurological, and obviously psychological effects long-term. And what does that look like and how do we study that and, and how do we support those individuals as they move forward in their uh, recovery from COVID and potentially the possibility that they might have to deal with long-term consequences. Excellent. Final question, just picking up on that, but thinking about health professionals, um, how do you start to plan for the likely burnout and you know, the sort of attrition and possible sort of career changes by people who've been providing care sort of on the front lines of this for weeks and weeks, maybe months and months? Yeah, I mean, I think the psychological impact um, on the providers at all levels and everybody involved in running the hospital, taking care of patients from the, you know, the cleaning staff to you know, every component um, of running a hospital, of, uh, people that are involved in every aspect of running a hospital are going to be traumatized by this. So we have psychological counseling um, available to everybody at present. We've multiple avenues through which they can seek that. Um, we are preparing to provide long-term supports for our faculty, staff, and employees, um, as we know that there will be PTSD from this. There's bound to be. Um, actually, our dean, uh, his area of expertise is resilience and PTSD, and he's mapping out a plan for programs for long-term support for those involved. And, some of the numbers that have been quoted, if you look at this, that the deaths and then uh, due to uh, COVID will exceed that due to Vietnam. And if you look at the impact that Vietnam had on individuals uh, involved in, in, in that, the level of PTSD at 10 years is about 23%. So this is going to be a lasting long-term effect on the people that have responded. Um, it's similar numbers seen with 9-11. There's going to have to be supports long-term for individuals. I, I agree that 
people will emerge from this very different individuals. And it is quite likely that there will be an attrition from healthcare because of it. But I do actually also think that this may actually be a motivation. In fact, I received a wonderful email yesterday from a colleague of mine. I, I thanked her for stepping up to lead one of our deployed teams on the floor. She's a very accomplished physician, a leader in our institution. And I thanked her for her leadership. And her comment was that she hoped to be a role model to our younger faculty. Her analogy was that our generation had faced similar traumas at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. And that we had, uh, met, or we, but many in, in our generation had seen that as a motivation to go on and do good and to make discoveries and innovations in the field of HIV uh, and look where we are now. And that hopefully not only bad will come from this, but that it will become a major motivator for our younger faculty and staff and researchers to make discoveries that change not only uh, the treatment and the prevention of COVID, but also prevention of subsequent events like this. And so I think I take heart in the fact that out of bad also comes good and that maybe this will lead to greater development and new insights that uh, motivate our faculty. Just building on what you said, I'm, I'm struck that another potentially positive outcome of this experience will be both the renewed emphasis on and belief in science and research and data, as well as a sort of renewed level of support for all health professionals and, and recognizing health professionals and first responders and others who make incredible commitments and sacrifices that often don't get the recognition that they certainly deserve by society, but also I would say by you know government and the media and others. I agree. I think we had reached a point in um, in America and maybe more broadly and worldwide uh, where uh, there was a lack of emphasis on data and science. And uh, I think in part that led us to be where we are. And it led for this crisis to be worse than it should have been. And I think now it will show that really um, data and science is essential to our advancement. And that, again, as you say, it maybe will uh, re-emphasize the selflessness of healthcare workers, not only at this time, but at all times. They truly do give the role for their patients. And this really marks and emphasizes that. Well, Barbara, thanks for taking the time again this week to catch up and just to let you know that, that everyone is thinking about those of you in New York um, who live there, who work there, who you know, it's such a fantastic city and it's such an important part of the you, you know, United States' identity. And I think um, part of that's been lost in this whole experience, I think. Um, and I, I just don't want us to forget that. The, the, um the, the wonderful outpouring from around the country has been incredible. Um, actually, another positive note, if you don't mind me mentioning, uh, the residency programs in Boston reached out to the residents of New York, sent them individual notes, and have sent them 
a um, gift bag. Uh, we haven't received it yet, so we don't quite know what's in it, but it was a tremendous show of support between colleagues. And similar signs of support have been shown from around the country. So maybe this is also a good sign that we aren't all that different um, in different parts of the country um, and that we are all here to support each other. Well, if Boston's reaching out to New York in any capacity, then I'm speechless. So I'll just, I'll just end this podcast there. And, and thanks again. I really appreciate it. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.